We've been looking at Hebrews uh, since September, and today specifically we're in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And I just want to remind you a little bit of context that um, so far as we've covered the first 10 chapters almost, the first 10 chapters are really dealing with stuff we're supposed to know about Jesus and, and what God wants us to know about Him being our intermediary and being the one who is the go-between between us and Him. So then we can go be what God wants us to be to the world. In fact, you can't be until you know. And a lot of times, I think uh, uh, we have a lot of people that know and they're, they're not being because it's just a head knowledge. When he talks about knowing, it's not just knowing intellectually. It's actually knowing uh, as a conviction and, and being in an intimate relationship with God the Father. And, and so the writer is writing to three groups of people. One group, they know and they're all in. And their hearts have been changed because they've surrendered their lives to the fact that Jesus is all they need to be in a right relationship with God the Father. The second group, they have left that Jewish sacrificial system, but they have not really surrendered to Jesus being the only thing they need. They're still trying to figure out if it's Jesus plus something, or but they're not all in. And then the third group is still trying to figure it out and they don't, they don't know whether they believe it or not. They haven't even left the Jewish system. And so these believers and these people who were, I call the hangers-on, who was there with them in the faith community, who had not bought all in, they're being persecuted by Romans. They're being persecuted by the devout Jewish believers who still believed in the sacrificial system. And so the writer writes this letter to the Hebrews, and in it he gives them five warnings and a lot of theology to help them understand. Because, guys, the theology is important. A lot of times we don't think theology is important. What we believe determines what we do. And so if we don't really believe the things we say we believe, then our lives tend to reflect that. And so it's, a, it's an encouragement to people that do believe that might be struggling, which we all do, but it's also a warning and exhortation to people that have not yet bowed their heart to Jesus. They've not really trusted in him. They just know about him. And I think if we look around today in the church, especially in America, I think there are a lot of people that know about Jesus, but they do not know him intimately. They don't depend on him. And so what, they, what we have is people who are going to hear in Matthew 7 those tragic words where he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And I don't want that. That's the, that's, the, that's the worst thing that any pastor really could ever hear to me uh, uh, is that anybody who lives a life that pretends they're with Jesus, but they don't really know him. They just know about him. And they think because they know about him that they are somehow included in the family of faith. And that is very clear in this book because in this letter to the Hebrews, in chapter 2, he warns the people in category 2 who understand it but have not received it. And he says, don't ignore the invitations. I want you to think, uh, and I know, Joe, Leon, you're on this call, and, and you know, you and I had conversations. I want you to think about how many times that message comes to us and we ignore it in our life. I mean, most people, when they hear the message of Jesus the first time, don't automatically respond. It takes many times for us to grasp it, to really know it. But there's a lot of people that because they're attracted to the message, sometimes they make an intellectual assent to it, but it never really changes anything in their life. It's just something they know about. And he's warning in chapter 2 of Hebrews, don't ignore the invitation. Don't drift away from the message. Keep coming back to the message. And, and so what I see sometimes in life is, Teddy, I'll share with people and they'll hear it the first time. And then when I, I see them again and I start talking about it because they've not really surrendered, they go, no, nah, I don't really, really want to talk about it anymore. And they start drifting away from it. And that's what he's warning against, because as you drift away from it, you become hardened. 
And that's the second warning in Hebrews 3 is that a lot of times those that hear, but they harden their heart. And he says, don't harden your heart. Let your heart be soft. This is a good thing. It's good that God is wanting a relationship with you. He's offering you a chance for peace, not judgment. I mean, I think if people really were able to step back and see that, they would want that. But what happens is the enemy comes in and he says, you know what? He just wants to control you. And we, we think we lose something in having a relationship with God instead of gaining something with a relationship with God. Think about it. For you guys who grew up in a legalistic church, how many of you grew up believing that if you came to Christ, you were actually losing something? You were losing freedom. It was taken away from you. And then that's not the message. It's one of hope. It's one of gaining Jim Elliott was a missionary. He gave his life to Jesus, and he made this statement. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now think about that for a second. This is a guy who didn't just say it, he lived it. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Guys, what we gain in having this 24-7 access to God is unbelievable. And so he, the third warning he gives in Hebrews 5 is he says, don't waver. Don't keep going back and forth wanting to go back to some system. Now I realize, Ken Forfar, you've never sacrificed a lamb in your life. You know, you, you've not sacrificed a goat. None of us have, Phil, you didn't take a, a bull and go cut it up in your backyard and offer it on a temple mount or a sacrifice on, on an altar. We don't do that. And so a lot of times when we read through these things that we see they did, we don't think in the context of what that means for you and me. And for you and me, what we've got to do is go to, what do I depend on? to take care of my sins with God. I talk about Jesus, but what do I do in my life? When I blow it, am I, do I have this idea that, well, you know what, if I just go to church more, or if I just go to Bible study more, or if I just read my Bible more, if I give more money to missions, that will make up for the fact that I sin and I'll feel better about it. And, and what ends up happening is we view our sacrifices of giving whatever that looks like, in the same way that they would go take a lamb. And and so for you and me, it might not be that we we still want to go sacrifice a goat, but what we do is we think, if I just work harder because I've blown it. And and that's how we got to understand that what he's saying applies to you and me, that Jesus is the only thing we need. He's superior to everything and that all our hope is in Him. Nothing we do makes God love you any more or less. So when you blow it, it doesn't mean God's sitting up there, well, Ken really blew it today, so man, I hope he's bringing something good here because he better have a good sacrifice today. That's not the way it is. And so what we started seeing when he mentioned Melchizedek is this thing that I think is very instructive for us in America. And that's that Jesus is not only our priest, he's our king. He uh, he, He references a guy named Melchizedek. Now, Jovan, have you ever heard of Melchizedek? You can just... Yeah, yeah. You, all right. So you have, right? So this morning at my Bible study this morning, um, there was a guy who had never heard of him. And he's been a believer for a long time. But he's in Genesis chapter 14 and 15, actually. And Melchizedek was this priest who was a king of righteousness. He was a king of peace. He was a priest and a king. The only two people in the whole Bible that were priest and king is Melchizedek and Jesus. And so the writer to Hebrews is writing to them to say, hey, Jesus isn't just about a sacrifice. He's a king. He reigns, and he reigns over you. And I mean, that's today, a lot of people don't like that message. 
They don't like the idea that Jesus reigns over us. In fact, they, everybody wants a savior. Not everybody wants a king. And, and, and so the writer keeps bringing this up, and he started back in 7, and as he's unfolded last uh, couple of weeks, we looked in chapter 9 of how he brings in that Jesus is the administrator of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, where he says, people, my law will be on their hearts, and I will forgive their sin. I won't hold their sins against them because of Jesus. And so why does he put the law of God on our hearts? Because he says, I want my people to understand that they are set apart. They live a different kind of life. You don't live the law to be in relationship with God. You live the law of God because you're in relationship with God. And that's, that is what he says in chapter 9. He's showing us this better model of worship. It's a better ministry. The old covenant was merely a picture and remember, you don't go from kindergarten to college. And so he starts off with a picture book, and he, and he used the temple kind of as a picture book to show that in the Old Covenant there were repeated sacrifices. In the Old Covenant, he used the blood of animals. In the Old Covenant, it only covered sin. In the Old Covenant, it was for Israel only. But the New Covenant, there was one sacrifice, and it was Jesus. In the New Covenant, it was Jesus' blood. It was divine blood that was shed for you and me. It had to be divine blood. In the New Covenant, He took away the penalty of our sin forever. So that, and it was for all sinners. It wasn't just for Israel. It was for everybody who sinned. And, and so last week, we kind of went over that when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai. That word means the debt is paid. And so he started in verses 1 through 4 looking at our problem, which was the law, the Mosaic system, could not take away our sin. It merely gave us a forbearance. It gave us a delay until the penalty was due. But when Jesus died, it took it away forever. And so that was our problem. And then he, he showed us the solution in Jesus. He did what Jesus, I mean, what God desired from every Old Testament worshiper. And you know what that was? He lived a perfect life. Jesus lived the law perfectly. He never sinned. That's why he could be the sacrifice. He did what you and I could not do. And we can never do. Even, do you know that there are some people who actually believe that because of Jesus now, you're sinless, Phil. You're not sinless. It's just that your sin carries no burden of judgment with it today. When you sin today, it's not because you have a bad heart inside you. Sometimes I hear people talking about how they just, they, they have a bad heart and a good heart. No. Listen, when it says the heart is deceitfully wicked in the Old Testament, the heart of a believer is not deceitfully wicked. It's just trapped in a body that is weak. Remember in the garden when Jesus told the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? Our spirits are good. If you're his kid... Guys, your spirit is good, and we need to get away from this mindset that, that, that there's a duality of hearts inside of us. No, you have God's heart in you. The problem is it lives in a body that craves earthly things. And so when you blow it, it's not because your heart is evil, it's because your flesh is evil. And Paul says in Romans 7, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Why? Oh, this body, deliver me from this earthly tent, this wicked body. And so when we think about those things, we saw last week that the benefits of the solution in Jesus was He's freed us from forever from the guilt of our sin. He's freed us forever from not being able to come into the presence of God. I don't know if you've thought about that, Jay, but no Old Testament believer, no Old Testament prophet, no Old Testament godly person ever had the Spirit of God in them 24-7, 365 days a year. 
They didn't have the intimacy that you and I get to experience. As close as uh, Moses was to God and God said he was a friend, do you realize that he did not have the Spirit of God living in him? He did not have what you and I have. It says that they long to see what we get to experience. Now, so here's a question I have for you. Do we take that for granted? Do we, do we take full advantage of the fact that every day you and I can interact with the God of the universe as a child to a father? They would have never called God dad in the Old Testament. They were terrified of being around God. But we saw a benefit last week of Jesus. The wall was done away with. The veil was torn, right? We don't need a priest to intervene. Jesus intervenes 24-7. We don't need a wall to separate us because we can... God warned the people, don't even let them come up on the mountain near me or I will, I, I will, I will smite them. I will take them out because they're so unholy. But because you have the Spirit of God in you, you are now the house of God. It's not a church building. It's you. You are the house of God. I'm the house of God. So we're sanctified forever. It says once for all, we looked at last week, we're secured forever. And we're perfected forever. His death, and he said last week, it's the Holy Spirit that guarantees and and. He said, I will put my law on their minds and hearts. They are forgiven. I I don't think we fully appreciate that all the time. I think we allowed the enemy to come in. And Anders, when we blow it a lot of times, what happens is we think, I can't go into God's presence. I'm so dirty. I, I can't go before him. He's so holy instead of realizing that even as you blow it, he's sovereign over that. And what he's doing is he's conforming you to the image of Christ because as you blow it and come to the cross, guess what happens? You become more humble. What does he say in Matthew 5? Blessed are the strong in spirit. He says, blessed are what? The poor in spirit. And when we realize we have nothing to offer him, then that's, that's where he wants us to be and we become more like him. So today, as we look at this passage, now, I know I sent out to you Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and I thought, you know, surely we'll be able to get through six verses today, but it ain't happening. I'm just going to tell you, we're going to get through three verses today. There's so much in these three verses that I think we really need to understand because remember, before you can do, you have to be. Before you can be, you have to know. And so what he does in this passage in Hebrews 10, 19, he tells us what we have. And he tells us that we have access. I want you to write these words down. Access, we have assurance, and we have an advocate. That's what we have. We have access to God the Father 24-7. We have assurance because of Jesus that we can always go into His presence. What we'll do is we blow it and then we're afraid to come to God. We're like, I don't want to see Him. Man, I'm, I'm not worthy to see Him. Do you know you're never worthy to see Him? I don't care how good you are. Billy Graham couldn't go into the presence of God if it wasn't for Jesus. And so when we blow it, it doesn't keep us from going. And at the same time, when we're good, it doesn't make us worthy to go in. We have the assurance that because of Him, we can go in anytime. And then third, the advocate, He is a great high priest. It's because of Him. He's always interceding. So because those things, because He's our priest and king, we have access, assurance, and uh, an advocate. Now He says in, in verses nine, or 22 through 25, now let us, He says, let us draw near. He, let, he tells us things to do. Because we know this, let us go do this. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast and let us consider how to stir up or stimulate. That's what you and I are to be doing. 
And so what he's saying to the, the Hebrew people here is he's saying, because Jesus is our high priest, the first thing, and this is the only one we're going to look at today, we draw near. And you know what that is, guys? That's our response to God. God doesn't want you to put your hand up and, and do like this to him because you're afraid of him. And that's what we end up doing. This intimacy with him. Do you know when he wants you to really be intimate? When you've blown it most. He says the publican who couldn't even look up at him. That's the attitude. And he talks about that. We're going to look at the attitude today. How we draw near. But he's not talking about the act of drawing near. He's talking about our attitude as we draw near. And I'm gonna, we're going to look at that. So intimacy with him is our faith. And I love this. So yesterday at 5.30, I woke up and this outline just kind of was there in my head. I didn't go figure it out. I didn't sit there. and it, it just I love it when God does that. You know, one day Charles Spurgeon was working on a sermon. He could not figure out how to teach this text. And his wife said, I'm just going to pray for you. And in the middle of the night, he woke up. He didn't have a book by him or anything. Or the Bible. He just started writing because he'd already done the study. And the Holy Spirit wants to do that. And so I feel like as I prepared for this, you know, these, these words are just things that God was sharing with me about how I apply it in my own life. And that's what I share with you guys. And so I've got to remember that I have access, assurance, and an advocate. And because that, I want to draw near. But as I thought about this drawing near and holding fast and the stimulating one another, it, it kind of, you know what it looked like? Faith is drawing near. That, doesn't it take faith to draw near to God? that you're not afraid of him? And then what does it mean to hold fast when you're going through a difficult time? Well, that's hope. So if we have faith, then we're going to be able to demonstrate hope. And then third, how do we stimulate one another and stir one another up? That's love. As we're able to go through hard times and we stimulate one another, we're responding to other people. So our drawing near is a response to God. Our holding fast is a response to the world and our circumstances. And the considering how to stir one another is a response to one another. So it's the faith, hope, and love that Paul spoke about in Corinthians. Right here played out in Hebrews. And I thought that was great because I love it when a plan comes together, when God unfolds this and you see how it kind of ties in. So um, let's look at this text and read it. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to kind of unpack access and assurance and advocate and then drawing near today. So join me in Hebrews chapter 10, reading in verse 19. And it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May God bless His Word. <clears throat> so as we think about verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter. We have access. Confidence. That's past tense, present condition. In other words, our access to God the Father is a fact. It's not something we desire. It is, it is a fact. It's something we possess, not something we attain to. And I think sometimes we go to church and we think, well, if I go to church more, if I read my Bible board, then I can have access to God. No, it's an established fact that if you're His child, you have access to Him. No Jew in the Old Testament had it like we have it. The only way they could even do it was as a nation, and it was when the high priest offered a sacrifice, then that was their access as a nation. They didn't have that kind of individual daily access that we have. Even Moses didn't have that daily access like we have. The presence of God would come at different times. 
And it says when that presence came on him, his face would glow. But we have access 24-7. There's no veil. Do you know the veil was 10 feet tall and 2 feet thick? In Matthew 27, it says when Jesus died, that veil was torn so that we can have access. And he goes on in verse 20 to say, by the new and living way. And it's interesting that he says new. That word there, new, you know what it means in the Greek? Freshly slain or slaughtered. Isn't that interesting that the word new actually is translated freshly slaughtered. That he was freshly slaughtered for you and me. And and the fact that he did that, that God didn't even withhold that. And he says, it's living. It's a living way. It's not something that's dead or stagnant. Think about it. When that lamb was slaughtered in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, when they left there, there was no more intercession on behalf of the people for their sins. It it had to wait to the next year. But because Jesus did it once for all, it's it's assures us that we have 24-7 access. In fact, in Hebrews 7, we read a few weeks ago that He intercedes for us 24-7 in the Holy of Holies, which means we can come into the Holy of Holies. It's like, you know, you see these concerts where people know somebody and the security guard says, okay, you can come in because I know you. It's like God brings us into the Holy of Holies because we're with Him, not because of anything we do or don't do. We have that access. And He is our great high priest. And I love what He says in verse 21. He says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God. For me, do you know, I see things now that I've been teaching through Hebrews about the priest-king idea. Even in this one sentence, it says He is a priest over the house of God. Who's the house of God? It's us. We are the house of God now. God lives in us. He's a priest over us, which means He rules over us. So He's a king and He's a priest. He's not just a sacrifice. We are underneath His authority and underneath His care. As a a sheep is under... Listen, Dave Wilbert, a sheep can do nothing to care for himself. He doesn't even know where the food is. And that's why God uses the sheep-shepherd analogy a lot in Scripture because He wants us to depend on Him. And He's our advocate. I love what Isaiah says. Let me take you back to Isaiah 11 real quick. Verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Do you know what the word? Netzer. It means shoot or branch. A netzer. Do you know what Nazareth is in Hebrew? It's netzerith, the place of branches. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's that talking about? That's Jesus. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, or he will not decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked." Righteousness will be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness will be the belt of his loins. So he's righteous. He's faithful. He's a good high priest. And you know what it says there? In verses 6 through uh, 11, I'm not going to read it. But that's the passage where it says, the wolf was going to lay down with the lamb. The cattle are going to lay down with the lion. The lions are going to eat grass, not meat. It says that kids, children will play on the hole of a cobra. You're not going to have any worries with him. Do you live like that? Do you live with that kind of trust 
an assurance that this is the shepherd of your soul. This is the high priest. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. Listen, don't go back to the sacrificial system. Guys, don't go back to that old belief system that you have that says, well, if I just go to this church, I'm going to be okay. If I just do this for God, I'm going to be okay. It's Jesus and Jesus only. And He wants you to have that understanding. We have access to God. We can have assurance. It is a settled fact because He's living. In Hebrews 7, it says He's interceding 24-7 for you. Romans 8.31 says it this way, If God's for you, how can He be anybody else be against you? What can separate you? And it talks about the sacrifice of Jesus there. And He says, Because of Him, because of Jesus, no tribulation. No demon, no addiction, no broken relationship, no broken financial condition, no sin. Nothing you do will separate you from the love of God. Nothing anybody else does can separate you from the love of God. Guys, that, that right there ought to make you want to run through a brick wall for him if he says run through that wall. That's why for me, if he tells me to go to Ireland, I'm going to Ireland. If he says go to the, the deserts of India, I'm going to go to the deserts of India. If he says go to the deserts of Africa, I'm going to go. Because he gives me access to God the Father. He gives me an assurance that I have this access 24-7, and he is my advocate all the time. So even like last week when I blew it so bad with my wife that she didn't even want to sleep in the same bed with me, I know that He's interceding for me and it won't keep me separated from God and I can talk to my God, I can reach out to my God and I can receive the comfort and direction from my God who rules the universe. That's unbelievable. I love what my friend John Hanna said. John Hanna was a, is a professor out at Dallas Theological Seminary. Christian growth or discipleship is being saved by the grace of God and declared righteous and then spending the rest of your Christian life trying to figure out what happened. Think about that for a second. He says, we have been saved and made righteous and we spend our whole life trying to figure out what really happened because we don't know. We, we, we learn how to appropriate it through our life. And, and what he's saying is there that basically we just try to figure out how to live consistent with what God has called us to. And if you want to boil the Christian life down to three words, it's faith, hope, and love. What Paul says. And why does he say the greatest of these is love? Because the only thing we can really see is love demonstrated in the way we treat each other. And so, even though I live like an alien sometimes, my standing as a citizen of heaven is secured and never in question because of the Holy Spirit. It's because of the Spirit. Not because of me. It's because of Jesus. So, if somebody were to ask you, you know what, Tom? You're in heaven. You passed away. And you're in heaven. And God says, why should I let you into heaven, Tom? It has nothing to do with you, what you've done, or what you have, except to say, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I depend totally on Him. If it's not for Jesus, I can't be here. But because of Jesus, I'm here. I'm with Him. That, if that's not your answer, guys, you really need to step back and say, where is my faith? What am I trusting in? But because we have access, because we have assurance, because we have a great advocate, he says, now, I want you to go do three things. He says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us stimulate one another. Actually, he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another. You can't even go do these things if he's not the one giving you the impetus to do them. But he's telling us these are imperatives. Let us draw near. And we're going to look at that just today. Our response to God is intimacy with Him. That's the whole faith thing. He says, come close to me. Verse 22. He says, in verse 22, He says, let us draw near what? 
He tells us how. With a true heart, he says, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. He tells us this is how we draw near. First thing he says, he, I, I think there's two things he brings out here. A true heart, which is our attitude and the way we approach Him. And then when he says full assurance, he says bring it all to Him with an attitude of dependence. He says you're bringing it all to Him, understanding He's taking it all. So two things. What is a true heart? Well, it means genuine Authentic. It means being honest about our sin. It means not trying to put off something that we're not. And so when you blow it, you tell him. Proverbs 28.13 says, listen, if you conceal, you're not going to prosper. If you hide your sin, you ain't prospering. That was what God told His people. And what He's saying here is, don't come to me and act like there's not an area of your life that doesn't need to be dealt with. Come to me authentic and let me deal with it. He may not take it away right away, but he wants you to be honest and acknowledge it to him. There's nothing more precious to God than a broken sinner who says like the publican, I can't even look at you, Lord. I know I'm messed up. And he says, come, come to me. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful to forgive them. Listen, He forgave all our sins on the cross, didn't He? So when He says that in 1 John, what's He talking about? Well, for you and me to actually appropriate that forgiveness, we need to confess when He brings things to our mind. When we know we struggle with areas, like I struggle with loving my wife in a way that the Bible is clear, to love your wife in an understanding way. Not in a Doug McCary way. Love with her in an understanding way. Understanding what? Her. And that's what it talks about there. So come with a true heart. James 5.16 says, not only confess our sins to God, confess it to one another. That's why we have SWAT. We have a brotherhood. And so we talk to one another and share so we can pray for one another. But he also says in verse 22 that we come with this full assurance. What that means is bring it all. That we're totally dependent on God. I think one of the greatest killers of a relationship with God is an independent spirit from God. You think and feel entitled to what you have or don't have. And that makes you either bitter or cold. It makes you bitter if you don't have something you think you ought to have. And it makes you cold if you have something and you think you provided it. And so we have this independent spirit that's really promulgated a lot even by our culture. And we tend to view our job, our accomplishments as our achievements. And so remember Deuteronomy 6, what it says? It says, hey, I'm going to bring you into land. I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you wells you didn't dig. Be careful. Otherwise, you're going to think you deserve those and you got those yourself. And he says, he warns, don't be independent from me. Think about it. All you guys that have kids. Do you remember when your kids were young and, and, and they still depended on you? And they come up to you, Daddy, I love you so much. And you're like, what do you want? You see, they wanted intimacy and a relationship when it provided a benefit for them. Then they get teenagers and they get out on their own. You don't ever hear from them anymore. They don't ever call you. They don't ever talk to you. They're out doing their life. Why? Because they're independent of you. Not like a five-year-old. That's why I think Jesus constantly tells his disciples, you got to be like a little kid. Because dependence breeds warmth with the relationship. Independence breeds coldness with God. And so I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, I, got, I thought I deserved to fly Harriers. I put my time in. I worked hard at flight school. I did all these things. Instead of viewing it as what God had given me, I thought it was me, and I started making awful decisions, and that near-fatal accident when that bird came through my windshield was my wake-up call that, no, Doug, I gave it to you. I can take it away anytime. 
You are my child. Live like you're my child. And I tell you what, he broke me of that independence. And the best thing that ever happened to me was when he called me to leave the FBI to depend on him 24-7. 24-7 to depend on him for my finances and for everything. It was the best thing that ever happened. My relationship is warm with God because I'm totally dependent on him most of the time. And I find when I get cold with God, it's because I'm thinking, I got this. When I start thinking that way, it's when it, it goes south. So I want to close with this in, 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 in Genesis 45. We're not going to have time to get into it, but I want you to write down that passage, Genesis 45, and you go through verse 1 through 15. Joseph and his brothers are a great picture of Jesus in us and God with us through Jesus. In verse 3, he says, I'm Joseph. And you know what happened? The brothers got dismayed. This is the guy we thought we killed. And here he is, the big honcho in Egypt. Think about you and me with Jesus. If Jesus appeared right now in your living room, uh, Phil, and he says, I am Jesus, what would happen in your mind? Would you be dismayed? Probably like Joseph's brothers? Probably. That would be our tendency. And that's a lot of it because we're going to feel we're guilty of the death of Jesus, you and me. And, and what, I love what Joseph said in verse 5. He said, God allowed this because he loves you. He allowed this to happen. He allowed his son to be crucified because he loves you, Ken Forfar. He loves me. He allowed this. And in verse 10, Joseph tells his brothers, you will dwell in the land of Goshen. He says, I'm going to care for you. Jesus says that to me and you. I want to care for you. Then in verse 13, Joseph says, go tell my dad. Go tell the rest of the people. And he says to us, go tell people what I've done. And in verse 15, I love it. It says, his brothers talked with him. In other words, they had fellowship. I am Jesus. And we think, I can't talk to you, Lord. I've blown it. And what he says is, no, come to me, draw near, not because of you, but because we have access, we have assurance, and because we have an advocate. So as we close today, two questions in closing. Who or what are you drawing near to? And what are you trusting God for? Those are two questions we've got to wrestle with on a daily basis to remind ourselves that he wants us to draw near. And next week, we're going to look at what it means to hold fast our confession and to stir up good works. So I'm going to unmute you, Dave Wilbert, and I'm going to ask that you close our time in prayer. And then I know some people I have to get off, but I'm going to open it up if anybody has any questions or comments afterwards. But Dave, uh, I'm going to just uh, unmute you and let you uh, pray for everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Wow, Lord, um, to draw near. Um, as Doug asked that question, I thought about myself last night. And the things that <clears throat> I was going to do, and would I listen to your voice or not? And I had free time, and your voice said, open the word. And I wanted to watch Netflix. Mm. And instead, I opened the word. Um, and I depended on you, and I learned some incredible things. And uh, I don't do that all the time, but I drew near, and I was filled by your spirit. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful time. And uh, I think about Doug when I do that because I know he does that. And I know he leads us and he teaches us. And that's a, a blessing that we have that not a lot of people have. So, Lord, uh, I'm excited about the men that get to hear him. And I'm excited that you speak through Doug. Oh, and I'm you. so excited that we have this Zoom meeting on mm. Wednesday morning. Mm. So uh, bless Doug and bless the men that are here to hear. And I'm so excited that we're the ones that heard and received. Mm -hmm. Our hearts are softened and our hearts are the home of the Holy Spirit and the great high priest and king. Mm. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 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 I'm going to unmute everybody for a minute. If you have to jump off, go ahead. I love you guys. For those that aren't, I'm going to unmute. And if you've got any questions or anything. Hey, Doug, what was those two questions that you uh, 
that you wanted us to think about? What, uh, what, who or what are you drawing near to and what are you trusting God for? Or in other words, what are you depending on him for on a daily basis? Think about that. That's really what the question's about because we tend to be independent. We're independently driven a lot of times. Hey, Doug, this is Joe. Um, hey, Doug, so I'm in a situation right now in my life where uh, after meeting you, things change dramatically for me in a very positive way. But I'm in a situation right now where given everything that's going on in the world, you know, my, my work, which was always very fruitful, has fallen off dramatically. Um, my source of income is pretty much done. And I'm in a position right now where I've become totally dependent on whatever way God's ocean wants to take me. So, yeah. From the standpoint of both financial and emotional as well as family, uh, I'm completely dependent on God because if it wasn't for him and his the way I believe in him, I would be losing my mind right now. Yeah. But I'm, the, the question is, how much of this do you try to take on yourself? Like, you know, I so much believe in him that I know something's going to happen. But do I go out and actively pursue these things anyway? Do I... Do I try to take control of these situations? I mean, you and I both come from a very strong military background where, you know, it's power, get the heck out of the way world. How much of this do we, and, I, and it's a truly a question because I don't want to be complacent. I pray and I believe, but do you still go out and try to swim upstream or how do you, how do, you do that? Well, here's the thing. Uh, I think... I, I, when I talk about depend on God, it's more it's a, it's an attitude within to say, God, I'm yours. Um, I, I remember one time I was really struggling about a, a ministry I was serving with, and I said, God, I, are you asking me to change ministries? Are you wanting me to be in another place? And I said, my heart says, here's a ministry. And it was called Men at the Cross that's starting. And I said, I would love to work with that ministry, and but I don't, I don't know how to make that happen. Only you can make that happen, but I'm willing to do what you want to do. And if you want me to stay where I'm at, I'll stay there. But if you want me to leave, I'll leave. So that was in an evening prayer. The next morning, I get up and I'm walking. I'm at a camp where the leader of that ministry, that new ministry was at, and he says, Doug, an amazing thing happened to me last night. I had a dream and I dreamed you were working side by side with me in this new ministry I'm starting. What would you think about that? Now, listen, I don't see that all the time. There's been other times I've prayed and I'm like, I've had to wait. and I feel like I'm in a cloud because I feel like I don't know which way to go. And so I, I think sometimes God gives us an immediate response. Sometimes he lets us sit for a while to see, one, that, that it's a relationship with him he desires, not us treating him like a good luck charm. Because I think if we get those immediate responses a lot, we can tend to view him as a good luck charm. Like, okay, I'm just going to rub the lamp and then I'm going to get what, he, what I've asked for. And he really wants the relationship. But as far as our responsibility is he's called us as men to work, to be people that go out and work, whatever that looks like. And I remember one time, uh, Joe, there was a guy that I know who is now a consultant to churches all over the world that he came to me and he was a, a VP of a company making 250 plus a year back 25 years ago. That was a lot of money. It's a lot of money today, but it's a lot of money back then. He got released and he didn't know what to do. He kept throwing out job apps and nothing was happening. And I said, you know what? Maybe God wants you to deliver pizzas. I don't know why I said that to him, but guess what? The next week he went and got a job at Pizza Hut delivering pizzas. And for six months, that's what he did. And God used that time to teach him things that he wanted him to know that now he's traveling all over the world. He just got awarded an honorary doctorate to Oxford. <laughs> and, 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 and here this guy was delivering pizzas after he'd been a VP of a company. That's humbling. That's very humbling. 
And so, but, but he sensed God speaking to him through me. So God will speak to you through his word and through people and circumstances. And the issue is, are we going to be humble enough to say, God, I want to do what you want me to do. And I'm going to trust you to provide for me what you want me to have. He loves you, Joe, and he's going to provide for you. But he wants you to just look to him. He may not provide you the level of income that you think you ought to have. But that's between you and him. And if you trust him as your king, you're going to say, okay, God, you know, he gave you a background in the military. You can do hard. I know you can. I've visited with you. I know you're a hard guy. So you can do tough. Just are you willing to trust him through that? That's, the, that's really the question. I, I hope that answers it, what you are asking. I don't know if it does, but... Hopefully, it yeah, it does, Doug. It does. Thank you. It's 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 more just a re. It's not even a reassurance. It's just making sure that I'm taking this and approaching it in the right way because I don't, like you said, I don't want to use God as a good luck charm. Yeah. And and I just want to make sure I'm doing all the right things. And I know that in the end it'll all work out because it always does. But it's just the aspect of now that I'm getting closer to my faith and I'm being drawn in deeper that I want to make sure I'm constantly meeting. Um, Meeting the expectation. Well, some of the, one of the lessons learned for me in, um, is in, in walking down the path is sometimes I want God to give me a certain outcome. And, and if God provides, listen, I can't, I'm not responsible to, to operate with money that I don't have, true or false. God, God's not holding me responsible to live at an income level of a hundred K a year. If I don't have a hundred K a year coming in. And so God's not holding me responsible to that level. Now I may want to live at that income level, but that's my issue. That's not God's issue. And Paul said, I've learned to be content with a little or a lot. And I think a lot of times, whether it's money, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, we want to control the outcome and we want God to give us a certain outcome instead of saying, God, I want to, I want to trust you and I'm going to live where you have me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah.